Aloha Warriors, Joshua Loya, a.k.a. Joshua the Jedi, the aspiring servant warrior. Uh, I have a, a guy on here who uh, has... No, I, I'm, I'm messing around. I was going to try to come up with something special and clever, but uh, Donnie Hall, how are you, sir? Hey, what's up, gang? Oh, yeah. Doing pretty good. It's a beautiful yeah. night. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what's your opinion on uh, Christian punk bands talking about masturbation in their lyrics? Oh, man. That's a very specific opener, <laughs> and I respect your style, sir. <laughs> This is, this is a reference to the, the we were talking about random garbage before the the recording started but you can either decline to state and uh talk about the time you uh slept in the house the guy behind the butthole servers if you like <laughs> oh man yeah so i get lust control references now i've got to do a deep dive <laughs> no that, that's the only other association i have uh too much with austin uh my whole life uh my background is um, I worked on hip-hop videos for about 16 years in Texas, and that eventually took me to Los Angeles. But there were some really dicey... (laughs) (laughs) You know if someone's from Los Angeles or not, uh, when they say, I'm from L.A., and then you say, what part? And they get real quiet, (laughs) because they can't name exactly. But uh, yeah, no, at that time, I was working on a documentary about some kids that rode... Uh, fixed geared bicycles and uh, there were these fixie kids Um, I've always had an affinity because of hip hop for street art and a lot of street art graffiti it ties in uh, pretty well to basically any trash just roaming around on the streets and uh, we were premiering down at South by a small documentary and um, yeah a girl I was dating at the time my wife's gonna love this podcast (laughs) was like I know a place we can stay you might not get cancelled by the public but you might get cancelled by your lady (laughs) yeah that's worse um and yeah uh, just to sleep on the couch tonight yeah whenever this is the the night of the (laughs) the night of the uh Whatever the day that this is released, but anyway, please continue if you don't mind. Oh no, I have I have small kids. I'm used to being banished to wherever they decide to sleep. I'm a <laughs> yeah, I'm not very good with that. But uh, yeah, uh, Do- I've, documentary crashed, South I've by. crashed on a lot of places. Yeah, I've I've definitely uh, been to a lot of places. One time there was a year they were like, hey man, there's this cool concert. They have some guests. I don't know. Um, who's going to be there, but it's supposed to be pretty tight. and uh, So we're pretty fucked up, and we go to this um, one house, and it's a small, intimate backyard party. Um, Robin with Universal Records, who's a video commissioner, rest in peace Robin, that I worked with uh, for a long time, was there. And like out of nowhere, like the Beastie Boys play like a small, intimate backyard show. Dude, that's just dope. Like, what what, what kind of time frame is it? Like how ridiculously huge are they at this point? Oh, they're so huge. Um, this is po- like... This is post-Dill Communications or... This is early 2000s. Oh, wow. Okay, so everybody knew who they were. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. This isn't like uh, like Paul's Boutique where they're like falling off and I'm, yeah. you know, or something you know, like that. Paul, Paul's Boutique gets such a bad rap. Like, like I know it didn't <laughs> sell very well. And no, that's not a commentary. Like I, like, I know it didn't sell very well, but I think if you go back and listen to it, it's nowhere near as horrible as the sales of the time would indicate man i'm a hot sauce committed guy myself i like like anything where they have those old loops of us like man if i was known as this gonna be this kind of party i'd put my stick my dick in the mashed potatoes hell yeah (laughs) like that's the first time i heard that i was like what the fuck did i just and and here's the thing my mom i i was like 14 years old when i bought that cd i bought that cd i was 14 and my mom you know we're kind of hippie-ish converted catholics and I put on, she kind of dug the first song and, you know, it's like, oh, that's cool. Cause she was around. And then 
thankfully she was in the bathroom when that part of the song came on. When I was listening to the first time, I was like, oh. You're like, yeah. I can't wait for dinner and get out those mashed potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> KFC has the best mashed potatoes. What, um, for sticking your dick in or for eating? Oh, dick stuff. Oh, okay, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, hands down, it's so soft. Um, but <laughs> when it comes to um, this whole like weird, I'll unpack, I'll go back in time. Yeah, um, yeah so I've always... Ever since I got my hands on a like a shitty VHS camera, I was always drawn to uh, make terrible films. And whether it was reenacting, you know, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes with a bunch of red balls we stole from Chuck E. Cheese, or <laughs> um, being so inspired, like if thank God they didn't have YouTube when I was a kid, because I would have been like Me Too or whatever the hell else, and like falling under all, all those. Yeah, that you could have been Fred. I mean, you see how many how freaking popular that shit got. <laughs> Yeah, or else I'd be king of the world. One of the two. Um, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't have jack shit, man. Uh, poor parents. Anytime my uncle tells me stories of poverty growing up or different things like that, um, my wife's always just like, "Oh, don't tell him any more stories, Uncle Dickie, because you know he gets a really big head. Anytime he becomes more proud of how much lower he came from, like it helps him." And like my uncle Richard will be like, "Oh, that's nothing. Uh, there was a." storm that was so bad we're from the northeast uh like new england couldn't uh, tell couldn't tell at all it was so fucking cold we had to burn furniture and the wood burning fireplace to stay warm and it was just (laughs) anytime he tells me something i'm like yes (laughs) like oh i can one-up everyone else that came from so much less (laughs) you know you know but i mean rung by rung i mean when you're raised by kind of um, like a single mom bartender, you know, that was yeah, my whole life. Yeah. And like, she was so fucking trashy, um, alcoholic, you know, everything you can throw at her, you know, she, you know, right. um, I guess it, it all dated back for my mom when she was in Catholic school, the movie, ah, fuck. What's, the, what's the movie called that has like, uh, uh, some kind of poltergeist inside of a girl. I'm terrible with names. I'm the worst uh, podcast person. The Exorcist. The Exorcist. Oh, <laughs> the only, only the mo- one of the most. Fa- you know, I, I, I will. I will trust that you are a seasoned filmmaker, even though you couldn't co- think of one of the most iconic horror movies of all time. Oh, I'm into hip hop shit, but yeah, no, oh, okay. I, I get the emotions of it. That's what I file back. Right. Names I'm right. terrible with. No, um, we're good. We're good. We're good. And so she, uh, she's at Catholic school or whatever, and uh, they they tell all the kids like. If you see this movie, The Exorcist, you're gonna die the next day and go to hell. You know they started selling all these kids and jiving it, it, was, it up. It's pretty dark, and you know if you're if you're a really religious Catholic and you watch that movie, you are guaranteed in the 60s to or 70s or whatever. No, like 70 something. That's yeah, that's so. This is only like, this is less than a decade after the maybe a decade after the Second Vatican Council where they were like, oh, you mean you should actually read your Bible if you're Catholic. <laughs> Okay, so so the next day, everyone from her school shows up <laughs> to go see this movie, right? And so they go and they see this movie, and the next day, no one dies, and, and no one goes like, to hell. Oh, so the floodgates are wide open for sin yeah. <laughs> at this point, you know what I mean? And, you know, so she immediately, Catholic, 18, started having kids. My mom had me when she was like 21. Uh, so we didn't have shit. We lived in like some summer home that wasn't designed to be lived in, you know, by people. But long story short, um, she meets this guy, uh, my stepdad, 
who is this big, big fucking guy. He was shaped like a cobra snake, like a big chest, burly arms. They used to describe him. He had this tattoo on his arm that was like a wolf riding, a woman riding a wolf with a big shield that said Harley Davidson. Later in life, I'd ask him, and he had this big cross, you know, with my mom's name on it with a heart on his arm. And later in life, I'd be like, what does that mean, Dad? He's like, on this arm, you got love. And he pointed out my mom's name. And then he's like, and he points at the uh, the bear and the lady. He's like, and on this arm, you got fantasy. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is so long story short, uh, my mom's smoking a cigarette. Uh, I remember being a kid in the backseat of a car. She pulls up to a gym, and this guy's, like, getting out. He's, like, this giant jack dude. And she goes, Jim Henderson. And he's, like, yeah. And she's, like, you taking me on a date tonight? And then just, like, peels off in her car and shit. And he was this guy. Like, she met him when he was he was fighting you need, in parking I, I haven't even heard half of your story already. I'm thinking, there's a fucking movie here. <laughs> I'm not joking, dude. I'm not joking, dude. You totally set up a seat. Like I, I'm expecting, in sort of that kind of, uh, <laughs> like, like honestly, I'm thinking like a like a Kevin Smith movie based on your life already. Oh, if you, it gets dark, it's kind of a Scorsese yeah. dude, piece. Did you see, once it did gets you see going. Tusk? Tusk is dark as shit. Oh, for sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> There's my mom made a lot of bad choices, but um, yeah. So, so I'm just like this little kid, like hiding behind the Miss Pac-Man machine, like, pretending I'm playing it, nothing's actually happening, like, eating tuna melts, and, like, this guy, like, oh, my God. Uh, he was he was fighting in parking lots behind the Winter Circle, which was, like, a illegal sports bar near right. Boston. And, uh, yeah, and she must have had that, like, you know, that magic over him because, like, you know, she, you know, it was, it was weird. And we then we moved to Texas, you know, and he lost his job at this, you know, iron... Uh, metal fabrication place, and it came here right. to work on motorcycles. My mom was a bartender, and um, it was real. You know, the thing about a shitty childhood is you don't realize you were poor until you go back and look at pictures, <laughs> or you go back and you talk to people, and everyone's like, "Are you we saying you real. never had ketchup on your on your noodles instead <laughs> because you're too poor for barbecue for uh, spaghetti saying, sauce?" I'm saying I'm looking at my first grade pictures and I'm wearing like all my sister's hand me down clothes. I'm like, "What the fuck is bum equipment? Like what? Like what are these brands?" Um, yeah, no, you're, you're all going to like sixth grade homeroom wearing juicy shorts. Oh yeah, with the sliders underneath, <laughs> feeling real good about my life. Oh my god, yeah. Um, but yeah, lots of pain, lots of death, lots of cancer, constantly kind of in fear and kind of destruction. So okay. it's like a kid to adapt. You kind of become a chameleon. You know, you hang out with a certain yeah, group of kids I, I and can you get along. On that a little bit. And then you're always trying to like not stick out. It's hard when you're like a big ass dude. So I mean, like, eventually you're a large fella. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, um, too big, larger, larger than life. They'd always be like, "Hey, play on the football team." I'm like, "No, nah, I like the AV group. I'm I'm good." You know, <laughs> <laughs> you you wouldn't like this. Uh, yeah, and then so um, dropped right out of college, uh, a local charming college called Blinn College, and um, jumped right into day playing in the film industry. Fun story about that. Um, All right, good shoot. So. There was this kind of like black sheep kid. I'll just name, I'll just say his first name, John. John got, we, we all wanted to make films and shit, but we had no equipment. We had no money. We had no inroads. We live in this little, you know, drink and fuck cow town called College Station, Texas. 
and there's there's no inroad. There's no way for us to get in. So he takes it upon himself to break into the university and steal two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of gear. And <laughs> his best friend, who's like, "Yeah, man, we can make movies now." And his best friend is like, "Ah, oh, man, I'm I'm turning you in." <laughs> You gotta give all this shit back. This is terrible. So that dude gets he's like a red shirt walk on on the football team, all this stuff, and he moves right. to Houston and he works as a and he and he works down there and he just kind of snakes his way onto these film sets. And they're like uh he was like a, a, a master bullshitter. And he kind of made up his background, was able to get in working in the camera department. And and I just totally wrote the guy off. I'm like, well, he's fucked, you know? And then one day I get this phone call. I was like, Donnie, it's popping down here in Houston. You need to come check this out. And I'm working for like a, a Joe shit production company shooting dance recitals in Garland, Texas, and like going all around the stage. All I can think of is uh, you, you've seen Donnie Darko, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'm thinking Sparkle Motion. All, all, all the, oh, yeah. Every, the whole cast and crew from the Sparkle Motion is there. And so, you know, when we're on our comms and, and we're, we're watching the dances, like in between dances, uh, when we're not recording, we would zoom in on the moms and be like, ah, oh, check out this MILF, you know? And the ladies Do you ever there, accidentally record? <laughs> they got so used to the word MILF. They knew what it meant. So we had to change the term and start calling them muffalos. <laughs> like have all these like interchangeable things. But yeah, and that that landed me in Houston. And the first video I worked on was for this guy named Brad Jordan, who goes by Scarface, uh, who was a member of the Ghetto Boys. And they're all right. I was like, I, I knew something was up. All right. Yeah, and that was that was pretty prolific. Yeah. And they were like, Can the Ghetto Boys were some revolutionary stuff back in their day. Oh yeah, you had Bushwick Bill. He's like this yeah. midget Jamaican dude. You had. Um, Willie D, who was crazy. Um, I worked with him so long, but he was. Those guys would always punk my ass. Like they showed no respect. I they, would. They, I get the impression because, like, I've heard. I think Willie D did a. He was on Rogan a while back, and he was telling stories about how they got got rolling, and and I get the impression that they would punk the crap out of people just as a good naturedly, but you know, still oh, yeah. loves to mess with people all the time. Oh God. I was, so I'm in every situation from this point in my career forward, I'm the only white person around other than John who eventually booked it and went to Hollywood and do other shit. So like I've, I've got this giant tattoo of a cross on my arm, right? Cause, cause love, you know, I learned that from my dad. <laughs> Did you, well, where's the wolf with the chick riding it on the other side? <laughs> I don't have the wolf. And, and it's the, if anyone wants to look it up, it's the 1970s Rumplemint liquor logo. <laughs> Tattooed on his arm because that that's the that's the chick with the on the wolf. Yeah, it's like this giant bear wolf or um, right, right. But if that's that's, plays that's from the Rumplement. Yeah. yeah, it would be a um. I forget the name of a bigger wolf, like a not a werewolf. like a dire wolf. Dire. Or oh my yeah. god, you're fucking incredible, dude. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a fantasy nerd, dude. What are you talking? Okay, oh man, I'm about it. Um, I don't let these guys know that. Um, yeah, so th- like I'm in this doctor's house and he's like, uh, I was like, um, man. I was like, shit. And he's like, you can't say shit in this house. This is a, a doctor's house. And he, you got to have respect in your house. So I'm like, man, I promise I'm respectful. I'm good natured. Like, I'm Christian. Look at this giant cross on my arm I've got tattooed. Like, I'm about it. And he looks at me and goes, your people burn crosses in our yards. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I can't fucking win. I was just like, all right, I'm going to go to the truck. And it was, it was weird. So, <laughs> and that led to um, working with, and at that time, 
mid, there was this like hip hop explosion happening in Houston. You had like Mike Jones putting singles on the chart. You had yeah. Pimp C and Bun B singing that song with Jay-Z called Big Pimpin', like 2001. Yeah. It was going crazy. There was money everywhere. The labels were pouring money in. We were doing videos, $85,000 budgets. And there'd be like 10 of us. And we're like, yo, how are we going to split this shit? You know, and we were living in Houston and Montrose, and you have all this artwork, you have culture, you have amazing music and sound. And I always got along pretty well um, with a lot of, you know, urban community. You know, I would make really good friends um, with a lot of different kinds of black dudes and stuff. I, I didn't have the race thing going on. I never had a, a cultural understanding of what it's like, but I knew what it was like to be dirt shit poor. I knew what it was like to want more for your life. And I knew what it was like to struggle your ass off, live in your car and have a lot of bad things happen to you. You know? So like I could always get put on. Or you could probably level. get at least some respect. Cause they were like, all right, he's not one of the, one of the, you know, kind of out, completely out of touch white people coming in our community acting like they understand everything. Yeah, my, I'm not a DP because my mom bought me a camera, you know? Right. <laughs> like, and so eventually you're around that community long enough and you make ins for people, you take care of people, and you just be a good person. And so you start getting like a hood pass to where, right. you know, I can be over at like McGregor Park and like I'll get pocket checked like a group of dudes and be like, yo, who the fuck are you, you know, like what you claim like, type shit. I'm like, man, I got a pass from Big Cluck, dude, and I'm good. And if you got a problem with that, you can talk to little Jay. And they're like, Jay Prince? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, man, we're good. And they're like, oh, that's what's up. And then let's just like, well, let us know if you need anything, you know, <laughs> it turns from like getting robbed to like immediately having like a like a layer of code of protection area you know kind of thing yeah yeah and yeah and i i rocked that for a long time man slim thug was a big part of my life uh paul wall the only other white rapper when i met him in person you know what i respect about people like paul wall is the very first video shoot i ever worked on with him like most people are super bougie and whatever and just take off but like that dude stuck behind after the video shoot and helped pick up every single piece of trash <laughs> that's dope because like i i've been you know i i didn't get anywhere near on the level that those guys did with their music um but you know i got regionally successful we had you know with some of the bands i was in and and um but like you'd get that the, there's always the thing with the singer even you just played a show you're like hey dude you don't have gear. Help out the rest of us. You don't have to actually say anything. <laughs> yeah. It's nice. And meanwhile, our our drummer who had his his whole rig is like, he's helping everybody. He's hustling. So no, I I I've hundred percent get what you're saying because you you get it doesn't matter how you might not be famous at all, and basically the only people who know you are regulars at this one club. But you act like you're God's gift to the universe. <laughs> and I was like, dude, how about you? You know, realize we're all people, dude. So yeah. when, when somebody on that scale like comes back and they're they're helping out, that's that's cool to hear. Yeah, no, there's like an aesthetic to ego, and then there's like a aesthetic to realness, and that's another word that came out of Texas during that time, trill or like real. So right. the word trill um, first happened um, because it was this abbreviation that basically meant man, that's just trill, that's trill, which basically in Texas meant too true to be real, which right. is kind of a cornerstone, a cornerstone of. Um, Texas rap vernacular. Uh, another thing that comes out of that of that era um, was probably the greatest contribution Houston gave to hip hop, and um, that would be kind of DJ Screw or uh, okay. Robert Davis. Yep. Um, he was he was he he would set up these two turntables, and he would slow the music down, 
Now, uh, there's even a collection of all of his screw tapes in, you know, Library of Congress and uh, University of Houston celebrates him. Uh, but at that time, he was just doing what he was doing, and it was highly influenced by barbiturate drugs, specifically um, promethazine hydrocodone, which was a cough right. syrup. Yeah, yeah. And at that time... How about that syrup? Yeah, the scissor. <laughs> <laughs> so at that time, like, this shit cost like $600 for a pint was the, the open street market value. And How much did it take to get you rolling? Shit, three, I, fingers, I, three fingers? Three fingers? <laughs> Let me get two fingers. That's uh, that's still steep. They'd put it in a baby bottle, and you'd yeah, measure yeah. it out by how many fingers your yeah. you, your fingers yeah. came up on the side of the bottle. Um, but I mean, I it's hard to be in that culture and not kind of partake in it, become sure. self absorbed and and into it. And he worked a lot with a guy named Z, uh, Zero, um, okay. the Mo City Don out of Missouri City, and then you had like Lil Kiki. Um, who was just incredible. And then my personal favorite, like Fat Pat. Um, all, you know, probably half the people that I worked with at that time have passed away from either overdoses or other stuff. I mean, um, Screw's brother, like his Hawk, was shot. I've been on these sets that had a lot of intense violence and other stuff. And I was Anything working. Anything break out on the set? Oh, yeah. I've, um, I don't know. I've been involved in... Uh, for shootings, I've only shot my gun twice, uh, and it was all near Greens Point, or as they call it, Guns Point Mall. Uh, some guys were talking shit, went off a neighborhood, and we we're like, we gotta get the fuck out of here. They came around the corner. A dude had like a big chopper, like probably like an AK, and he started firing rounds. And we jumped in the truck, and me and a guy named Richie Rich, I just took my Glock and just like unloaded. Um, towards the dude, and there's a lot of crosstalks and shootings, and we just burned out over there back to I-45. Um, it got real sometimes, but yeah, every time I mean, that sounds. I mean, I, I've been in, I've lived in neighborhoods where gunshots have been. I've had guns pulled on me. I've even had people try to start fights with me, and have been in fights, but I've been thankfully, uh, I've never been in an actual gunfight. Man, I fucking hated it. And then, so then, like, it evolved, you know, a lot of times when you're shooting a video, people, like, put pull their gun out and point it at the camera, and, like, they gesture, and I'm like, man, like, fucking I'm right show behind some this trigger, thing, dude. <laughs> show some trigger discipline. Show some goddamn respect. If I get shot, your video's not getting done. Um, and he was like, man, it's unloaded, and I walk up and rack the clip, and, like, a bullet pops in the air, and I catch, and I'm like, oh, thanks, like, Did you dude. check the chamber? And that's how I knew I was getting too old for that shit, you know? Yeah. And then, yeah, so I made the jump to L.A. eventually. The Zamani brothers. So it was like a whole other chapter. Right. Sometimes you you only catch a break, really. The the secret to being a filmmaker and being needed by a producer or other stuff uh, with Warner or Universal was being needed, being reliable, always turning your shit in. And... Um, it, it bred a lot of opportunity because if you're working with a talentless creative that's really good at schmoozing, they're going to rely on you 100% to do the actual work. And so that's what... So the trick is to be dependable or reliable. That yeah, somebody, tr- yeah. If you Make say you're going to do something, they can know you're going to do it. Yeah. Be the secret behind someone. Don't take the limelight. Let them go out to the club. To me... Because you'll get it eventually if you stick around. If you work hard at anything eventually, you will outlive and outsurvive anything. Even if you're completely shitty. Like we've seen it time and time again. <laughs> but, you, you know, 
and and that's um that was part of making the jump for me like i didn't give a fuck like once you hit the bottom and you've lived at the bottom and you had a lot of struggles you're not afraid to go back you know you're not you've lost everything so anything above you that is you always a net gain well yeah. it's it's kind of like like right like um i don't know if you can if i'm th- this is how i would think of it right um, cause you know, martial arts has been sort of a therapy for me of sorts over the last however many years. And if I go into Hell jiu-jitsu yeah. class and, you know, um, if I know that I can still do okay, six, seven rounds in while I'm dirt tired and my friend John is on, I don't know why John's always the, the, the crazy <laughs> guy, but my, my friend John's who outweighs me by like 250 pounds is choking the shit out of me. And I get a reversal on him and I, I get him in a, a shoulder lock. Like, and I, and I do that when I'm tired. I'm not worried about some guy jumping me later. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, there is something to be said about pushing yourself when you think you have nothing left. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, the whole time I'm doing this, do you know what's really funny also about having aspirations? I had these intense aspirations to be a director, to be a filmmaker, to make movies. And here I am just like in this tunnel of not doing that. I'm making the same formulaic video over and over and over again. Um, And this digital revolution starts kicking in. So there's less and less money. And then people start downloading music and then people are making more money at shows than actual production. So things just kind of go downhill. So it really puts a squeeze. You had to pivot. Otherwise you were going to be out of the game entirely. Oh, you were going to die of natural causes. (laughs) Um, So I jumped on with the Zamani brothers, Uh, Ali and Surush uh, Zamani, uh, these Persian guys. There's two ways to make it in Hollywood. You can, you can bust your ass and get lucky or you can buy your way in. And these guys were in there buying their way in. They were doing free videos for Ice Cube, free videos for Slim Thug. And they had a sucker like me that would edit it because one of the director of photographies that I worked with, his name, one of my best friends, Brian Villam. Um, Let's get bad with names. His wife is Joey Lauren Adams. Joey Adams. Uh, She was in a Kevin Smith. She was in Mallrats maybe. She was Amy okay. from Chasing Amy. Oh, okay, crazy. Yeah, and so Dude. he's my best friend uh, from from those years. And you know, a guy told me a long time ago uh, when it comes to filmmaking, uh, people that are in power make decisions on the crew they have, not by the best people, but who they just want to be around. Because when you're making a set, you're working fourteen hour days, six day weeks. You don't have time for a family or anything, you know. And we got along really well. And we had a lot of laughs and a lot of fun. And at the end of the day, got shit done. Um, and, and the Zamani brothers were just crazy. Like if there are any Iranian listeners right now, and they knew that I did videos for Gugush, dude, <laughs> that's like a panty dropper name. She's like the Madonna. The Ayatollah left his wife for that lady. Like <laughs> then she's like in LA or like doing videos for like Ebby and like all these other people alongside the next day, like Snoop Dogg would be coming in. Um, but the last big wave I had was probably like 2011, uh, when right. I was working with Tyler, the creator. Okay. It clearly well, uh, well-respected figure. Yeah. We, uh, we sure. worked on the Yonkers video and the Yonkers is like a really dark video. And I was like, man, I'm not sure if I like this guy. And then his lyrics were like, I want to stab Bruno Mars in the fucking throat. I'm like, okay, <laughs> this guy's cool. <laughs> this guy's all right. The first time I met him, he just stared at me 
and he's wearing a hat that said golf. And he goes, this is my favorite hat. And I just wanted to tell that to another human being and then walked <laughs> off. And I was like, all right, man, this guy's on something. He, he's either going to be cool or he's going to stab you in the fucking throat because you look too much like uh, <laughs> Well, he doesn't know how I was raised, man. Yeah. I, you know, uh, we keep our backs to the wall in our family. No one talks yeah. to each other, you know. There's yeah. something I always say is like, you know, uh, friends will stab you in the back, right? But family will stab you right in the front. <laughs> so that's why you gotta have your back to the wall with some people. I'm the only person that talks to everyone in my family. No one in my family. So, you know, my mom was this weird gravity that held everything together. Yeah. And so she got sick with cancer, and I started coming back and forth from LA to take care of her. And when she died in like 2012, it's like everything in our family, we were missing our son. Like everything just kind of spun out of orbit. And um, she was like that conduit that kept everything together. And, and now in some weird way, like I'm that conduit for my you family. You kind of picked up the mantle, so to speak. But yeah, no, I mean, like as an artist, right, we have these cycles of self-destruction naturally. And then on top of that, you have these really dark places you can go to. You're, you're constantly fighting uh, systemic, like all this depression and other stuff. And you don't know if you'd have it if you didn't have all these other things you were working against or going against. And it's really frustrating uh, at times to get right and to be right and feel okay and be okay with sure. yourself and be okay with being okay, right? Like it's, it's crazy. You can get well, real hard. And sometimes being okay with not being okay, you know, like. Oh, yeah. Uh, like I, I, I actually, you know. I get a lot of credit for like, oh, you're you're blind, or you're a martial artist, and you're a surfer, you do all this stuff. But I also got have PTSD, and I have some dark fucking days. And mm. being open and honest about it, like, hey, you know, you don't. Not everybody has to post something on social media. I'm sometimes an oversharer, so you'll you know, if you have people <laughs> who follow me, you'll you'll see me like, dude, that's some personal stuff. Why are you mentioning that? You know, I mean, I have my limits, but at least being honest with yourself that you're not okay if you're not okay. Like, if you're okay, being okay, be all right with that. But, like, I, I think the the kind of willingness to confront and just sit with, this is how you're feeling. Don't pretend you're not feeling this way because it's just going to get worse. Yeah, You can get past it. You can move beyond this. But you have to recognize the truth of what's going on right now. Otherwise, nothing's changing. Hell, yeah. You got you to gotta own that shit. You got to recognize it. You know, you got to... And, and that's so... That brings me to like one of the biggest theories I have between creating something that has a soul and purpose mm -hmm. and meaning and something that may look or sound good, but just lacks that connection, that kind of soul, that kind of like gravity that brings us into things we enjoy or like is I believe that the things we experience in life, the emotions we have, mm -hmm. um, give us this 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 palette right and i call it um an emotional palette and the more trauma good things bad things you experience in life the more colors the more palette the more range that you have to be able to paint and translate your human experience across mediums and across people and across languages because the more things you experience the 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 more um the more legitness you can put on top of what yeah. you're doing because you understand the material because you've, you've lost that or you've had that happen or you've experienced that goodness. And, you know, I sat in front of, I, I was pitching a script 
to a guy who just got off the movie The Alamo and Texas Chainsaw. His name is Cohen. He was working for Rooster Teeth. Rest in peace, <laughs> Rooster what? Teeth. And um, he was he was he was talking about like he read my script and he's like I can I can tell you've never been in love when I read your script. I can tell you've never had someone you love die when I read your script. I can tell, like, why are you approaching these issues, you know, when you haven't experienced them? It's like 40-year-old virgin when he touches a woman's breast or tries to scrub it. It feels, feels like, like sand. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so, like, all these emotions I was trying to convey on screen or through script, I was just like that guy where it was like I was telling everything felt like sand, you know? And that's not <laughs> what it feels like. And, you know, the, and it, it, to me, it's given me uh, a bit of, of, it's almost like an honor to carry around all that shit when you know you can use it to translate it or to, to give it to someone else or to have it have purpose or meaning instead of just carrying it for yourself. Figuring Did you out just kind of get to that point to use it as strength? Did that just kind of slowly happen? Or did you have a pivotal series of experiences that kind of shifted your perspective on all the stuff you'd been through? Man, that's a, that's that's a great question. I think uh, falling in love and having a family um, really, really puts it puts the feather in the cap. So far as certain aspects of things, I didn't think I would ever understand um, what it's like to surround yourself. Like the the only reason I've contributed any success to anything is I've always surrounded myself with people that will call me on my bullshit because I need. Yeah to be called on my bullshit. I need that because I'm such a bullshitter in some ways. I need people that make me better. And when you have that in a relationship that is also loving and then you decide something crazy like wanting to start a family and then having to basically not do it, have a gig life or entertainment life anymore and be like, you know, I'm gonna go get a job with insurance. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a I'm gonna be a provider. Do you do you sometimes I mean, did you find yourself chafing at the <laughs> conventionality of your, you know, because, you know, like, I, like, again, nobody go, nobody who's thinking pragmatically goes, I'm going to quit my technology job, which is what I did. I'm going to quit my technology <laughs> job to go be a professional adventurer. Oh, and by the way, while I'm injured and I can't compete in judo competitions, uh, I think I'm going to be a stand up comedian because that's practical. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you know, I can do this stuff because I don't have kids and I have some connections for health insurance. But if I, hell yeah. <laughs> but if I didn't, holy crap! Uh, and and so I I I found ch myself chafing at the the period of years that I worked a conventional job. Oh um, man, does oh, it yeah. does it does it help that you're I, still doing something creative while having the oh yeah so you know. The problem is, is when I first went corporate, I went balls deep and got a job at like a major university in the department of the president and handling uh, marketing and communication stuff. Just with so, my, well, I guess the upshot is you don't have anybody putting a loaded gun at your camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, yeah, you know, I got that going for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I lasted. I didn't last too long. I, I went back. And I took my book of business that I'd been uh, building up. I was at like a steak and wine festival. I was editing a 50 cent show in like the basement of a federal building. I got a, I was doing post-production. Uh, Warner Brothers and Universal used me as an editor at that time, as a fixer. They'd send me videos 
where the rapper or the artist would make would be like, yeah, my friend directed this video. <laughs> and they'd be like, this is total shit, Donnie. We need you to fix this. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to add a bunch of effects to it. <laughs> They're like, oh, this is tight. <laughs> and that's, that's um, I was working on that. And I met this lady at a Steak and Wine Festival. And it's so weird how your life changes sometimes without you knowing it. And I don't, I don't fault anyone for any of their choices or anything. But um, for me... I'd always been searching. I, I felt like, you know, I was slowly kind of retiring from the hip hop stuff at that time. I mean, I had a good run, you know, sure. a lot of stories, a lot of, a lot of fun. And then, um, it was kind of a, kind of a new chapter thing. I mean, you round into your forties or about to round in forties, you know, and you, you, you start to get kind of, um, kind of wondrous about some things. And I mean, for me, it's just where I ended up landing, you know, and uh, it's it's a it's it's a wild ride. What, what what so what kind of projects are you working on these days, man? Like, oh yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, we launched a company called Texas Filmworks uh, like two and a half years ago. Uh, it was the only other game in town. Um, and the reason why we're kind of anchored here is because my wife inherited um, a, a law practice, and I was like. Like fuck, I could never do any better than that. Like yeah. so far as I was like, I was like, that's like stability one hundred and one right there. I was like, so what can I do regionally? Like, what can I do? Right. What? How can I still be? It's funny, in? dude, because all the LA people, like a lot of them, are moving their way out to Texas because California is going to shit. Yeah, in a lot of respects. I mean, unless you're like la la hollywood it's still relevant but it's a lot not as relevant as it used to be so you, you actually by staying in texas you might be getting a lot more work than you expect man if i'd have stayed out there i'd be like a scum dog millionaire <laughs> like, <would> be like <laughs> most of my friends moved to like nashville and other stuff and settle down doing films and series i mean they're doing great but sure yeah so texas film works i, I so now i focus so much on storytelling right documentaries Using relatable experiences and sure. uh, doing a lot of higher ed videos and doing a lot of videos uh, for sports documentaries uh, right now. You're talking like 30 for 30 kind of stuff or? Uh, corporate stuff, so campaign stuff. Okay. So we do videos for a company called uh, Huddle, which is a national contract. And I'm pretty proud of some of the stuff we're putting out from them because um, we're representing a sports company, but taking concepts like. Uh, racism and other things just like head on and um it's interesting to and within the sports community maybe that stuff's not talked about as deeply perhaps kind of a deal or well you wonder right so uh with huddle I mean, with all the like... hate Cal colin kaepernick got with with his thing I mean, <laughs> it's it's clearly by the way that played out it showed a divide yeah maybe um and it's interesting so the company that um owns my company is a, like a sports conglomerate and that type right. of stuff. And it's, um, it's a very sports. I mean, when you talk about fans, there are mm. some fans that represent the root of that word, like fanaticals. Like I truly right. believe half the people would fly a fucking plane into someone else's stadium to win a game. <laughs> like if they had to, <laughs> well, if you saw that, like, well, I mean, we just saw it like a little while. I'm not really like a, a traditional sports guy. I got some exceptions, but like you look at the, <laughs> yeah, so this is the, a guy that'll just like fight people as a sport. Okay. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> but it's a different type of thing, right? You know, we all have what we're into, but the, the point is, is you saw the hate and the, the, the like, and the changing of emotions uh, leading up to the Super Bowl because uh, Mr. I don't like my uh, 
footballs fully inflated was you know planned for t- oh, did, I, did i say that yeah i guess i did any win against tom brady is a win against racism <laughs> i firmly believe that well apparently racism won because <laughs> yeah well here we are um who's to say uh but the main thing that we were able to is go to this town klein oaks where there's like six thousand high school students and document the story of like how the hell did they overcome covid like how you know oh, and still still basically have some seasons yeah they put these kids in, in a bubble right yeah. and it was just crazy and they had this coach there that tells every student that they that like they get on a level where he's like i love you he's like i love you too coach like some real wow. like, og shit and this wow. guy gave this speech that went viral for like seven minutes where he talked about you know um how we're not going to play racism in our locker room and how this isn't going to be a thing and we need to stand up for each other and be united and he's like he's like looking back on it um we weren't because school was out for so long because of covid we weren't feeding these kids a regime of of discipline and strength building and character they were being fed by social media this crazy divisive mm. thing josh can you imagine if we grew up with mm. social media like dude i don't even think i would have made it through high school i think i would have <laughs> i know I'm, I'm not i'm not saying this hyperbolically i'm not saying this to be shocking i'm not saying this to be funny i'm being 100% serious i literally believe that i would have committed suicide before my senior Damn. year because i was poorly adjusted and i graduated in 1998 <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah you didn't probably have so, a flip phone until 2000 something or a nokia dude, brick. I, I didn't i didn't i didn't have a cell phone until 2001 shit i don't have so i was like i think i was i'm trying to think i'm yeah i mean i was if i wasn't 21 i was really close to being 21 when i had my first cell phone so and a lot of these kids now they grew up having a cell phone when they were 10 yeah i glued to it it's insane but I don't want to digress. Into yeah, I mean, this is not a clown this, on. Social I don't think this is a clowning <laughs> on uh, Generation Z. I think it's just the reality. It's a different way growing up now. Uncle Dicky says it best. He's like, "Yeah, Donnie, we're raising space children now. Within a generation or two, they're going to be getting off this dirty ass place." <laughs> I'm just like Uncle Dicky. That's so smart. Oh, All right. Man. A- again, uh, if if not a. Uh, <laughs> If not a, a a movie, an audiobook, and you have to do all the voices. <laughs> oh God! I'll just do a whole Dude, thing. I, I'm, on I'm Uncle pi- I, I like how I'm slowly, not so subtly, pitching your life story to you <laughs> as a. I'm gonna do the Uncle Dicky story if I do anything. He's my. Oh, uncle. you hundred percent should. You absolutely in, should. You. He believes in aliens hundred percent. He believes in the powers of you know. He re- he's been really into amethyst lately. I fucking love him so much. <laughs> he walked into this place called Earth Art, which is one of those stores that smell like Nog Champa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so like, you got like and you got like crystals and like freaking oh, yeah. Tibetan singing bowls of the yeah, a lot of singing yeah. bowls. Yeah, you know, like a lot of random carved shit from Bali they stuffed in a unit and brought over. <laughs> and he walks in, he goes, ah, oh, and starts spinning his hands in the air, and he goes, "Can you feel the energy?" <laughs> and he always. Um, He's he's a self-proclaimed Reiki master. I didn't even know what the hell that was. Well, self-proclaimed because I mean there are people who legitimately he says he's like, a Reiki go master, but I don't. Did he ever train with anybody? Does he have a Yeah, but like he's like I showed up and I started reading everyone's auras. You should have seen the look on their face. 
<laughs> I'm like, really? What I love that. It? I love that vibe with that really kind of like grating northeastern accent. You know, oh, I, I'm so good. like imagining like like Gilbert Godfrey being a yogi. <laughs> All right, now breathe in. Now we're gonna move into downward dog, and we'll end up in our greatest relaxing pole, Shavasana. Like, uh, you gotta get on. You know. I don't know what you're doing. I'm nothing. We got to get Uncle Dickie on your show. Uh, <laughs> Uncle Dickie. Uncle Dickie's still oh around, dude. God. I'll talk to Uncle Dickie. You kidding me? Uncle Dickie. He said that if he would have known that he turned out the way he did, smoking weed every day since 1965, that he would have signed up to be a government science experiment. <laughs> he is just a, a breed all of his own. My wife accuses me of hiding him far away from her because if she'd have met him before we got married, she'd have called it off. <laughs> There's just a lot of Uncle Dickie. My God, we should all be so lucky to have an Uncle Dickie. We should. We should. I, I think. Uh, I, 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 you know, there might just be a little bit of uh, Uncle Dickie in all of us. <laughs> Tell it like it is, Uncle Dickie. Yeah, man. Um, that's I, that's really cool, though, that you were able to kind of capture that because, you know, like a lot of times we see the 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 stuff going on because of social media, right? Like we don't get to see the cool stuff because, like, when I think about college sports, all I think about is the uh, unfortunately how disgusted I am by the way NCAA doesn't value athletes, like, and those types of issues. I don't sure. like, like, and I think that's maybe why I have a harder time with with professional sports. I it's funny as I've grown to compete more, I have more of an appreciation for more traditional sports because I realize how much work it is. Um. But I, I, I think with like college sports, like we don't see sometimes it's it's usually one way or the other, right? We we see the the big triumph and everything else, and then or we hear about, you know, uh, how people are being kicked off of teams because or you know they wanted to get a product endorsement, or they uh, meanwhile they're being they're not allowed to basically get a get a job to supplement their their college expenses um oh sure you know and, and then you have people who are potentially you know developing permanent brain damage or playing college football yeah. and being their likeness being used in video games made by electronic arts a multi-billion dollar company and they're not allowed to get paid anything and it's that's my window into college sports or you have like the you know the what was it Purdue that had the rape allegations or you know coach Paterno over it um in Philadelphia and stuff so you have all these things that's it's a weird dynamic and we don't get to see like the human interest side of it that isn't gross oh yeah yeah uh I mean I think they should pay student athletes and I definitely think there'll be a lot of progress there or those end up shutting sports down or helmets or get turning giant bubbles or something (laughs) there's a lot of things to solve but I mean since the beginning of time we've had like gladiatorial games and all these shows of things sure um so there'll always always be something oh man so on campus the hardest part was never working with athletes and stuff it was when I was um doing documentaries for like NSF grants or things like that, I'd be introduced to some of the quirkiest people on earth. And so I like, I appear to be a very extroverted person, but like that's only, I use this extroverted ability to like cover up my crushing social anxiety 
of not being wanting to be around people of like this mistrust of pushing things away. Um, but I had like this one doctor I was working with, and this is actually how I met uh, Justin Romack. And his name was Dr. Weck, and he was uh, producing this uh, technology to allow it was like a like a reading aid, right? It was like right. uh, a bumped pattern they would put on top of an iPad that um, visually impaired people could run their finger across. So to get ori- basically to get oriented to where the icons are typically sure. Uh, and as you drug conveyed. your finger across, it reads to you. So you get the yeah. almost a yeah, reading yeah. experience. So it's fast yeah. or slow, whatever pace you want to. Because that's the thing about a book, right? The way you absorb certain p- pieces of information, you don't. You have to breathe. You have to take it in, right? So the first time I meet this guy, he's like, um, "Hey, how you doing? I'm I'm Donnie. Uh, we're gonna like talk to you, you know, find out more about what you're making here." He goes, uh, "Nice to meet you." And this that's racist to do an impression of an Asian person, but I don't work for AM anymore. So he's uh, like, "Nice to meet you." <laughs> Uh, my name is Dr. Hueck. And I was like, oh, man, yeah, nice to meet you, Dr. Dr. Weck. And he goes, uh, no, 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 not Hueck. Hueck. <laughs> I feel like I'm like, what? Like, it sounds like somebody looked at the Family Guy cool whip bit. It's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, no, Dr. Hueck. I'm like, okay, nice to meet you, Dr. Hueck. And he's like, yes, Dr. Hueck. And then, like, so we do this interview and get done, right? <laughs> And he goes, about when can we have this video ready? And I think I'm going to, like, grand slam this dude with a badass joke. And I'm like, oh, man, it'll take about a week. (laughs) He just, like, (laughs) stares at me. Like I'm like, this guy's going to pull out a knife and just gut me. No, no, see, like, if you want to be really racist, he's going to pull out a, a katana and slice yeah, your head off. Yeah, hit me in the neck with like a punji stick. I don't know what the hell's going on. I don't know where he's from, but all I know is he was very particular on how his name is pronounced. Like, I was going to be, he'd like, you'd hear my voice on screen or something. It was, it was always like that. It's all these people in these research divisions, and you get to learn about a lot of interesting things, but sure. everyone's embargoing their information, fighting for territory, and everyone's, you know, trying to get the research money because they need the research money. They they have to teach the kids. And we've set up this crazy cycle with education and colleges to where things um, you know, it's it's all about how much money you're getting and how many grants and how much progress you're making and how big's your program. And there's just so much pressure to deliver all that. Um, that people can't focus on their work, the research they're trying to do. Uh, well, it's funny. I, I kind of it, it's interesting hearing you you talk about that because I I, um, I dropped out of college. You know, I was I was a, first I was a computer science major, then I was an English major because I was like you know I'm more into creating stuff with my words. Or I'm gonna go that route, and then I dropped out to play in a rock band because you can't conquer the world in a rock band and still be in college <laughs> at the same time. Um, and but one of the things that I, I hated about the the college uh, world is you're training students, especially students straight out of high school. You know, I, I was different. I kind of bounced around a little bit, did the junior college thing before I went to the university level. But like you're you're training them to be obsessive compulsive. You're you're basically you're you're saddling these kids with a bunch of massive amount of debt and your your you have all this immense pressure from family fellow students professors 
And to hear you talk about like the the research people that you were working with, like the doctors and the different things, no wonder because they're professors. You know, it, the, all undergraduate students have either graduate students or or overworked professors being the ones that are passing down the workload and not understanding family obligations, and we're basically making it to the point where nobody can actually have a quality of life. They basically just have to hope their wick is long enough that it doesn't light their their dynamite. Uh, and you know, and ignite it before they finish their college career. Yeah, no, that's uh, super valid. I I don't know. Uh, some people thrive with routine and other things, and some people whose brains work differently just learn better by taking things apart or experiencing things. Um, but I do see a shift in a lot of the learning and styles that is happening to where, I mean, it's like. The like Cadillacs in the 1970s, they ran out of technology, so they started adding features. Like there'd be seven ashtrays, and what I'm trying to say with that is that we've 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 hit the wall in a couple areas. So we need to stop teaching how to write in cursive and focus more on how to solve problems. Because um, we've got, we're staring down the barrel of some some amazing problems and. The only way I could figure out how to patch that through with my family and what I'm doing in life is, like, how many cycles can I break? Like, can I break the cycle of poverty? Poverty. Sure. Yeah, I can check that box. Can I break the the cycle of childhood trauma in my family? Okay. Now, what would happen if someone with my curiosity and passion for the world were to be fully equipped with everything they need to go make a difference, right? And so that's kind of my big experiment that I have going on is either um, having something work out or just, you know, when I die, my kids will just go to Colorado and snowboard and smoke weed every day. Either way, mission accomplished. <laughs> you know, and here's the thing, man. Like, it's not really a bad way to live. <laughs> really? Who's to judge? It's that generational thing. You have a generation works hard, accumulates I mean, wealth, and then they piss it all away and from the ashes rise like broken, destroyed people who have to find a purpose in life and overcome trauma. And well, not be at so the same selfish. time, though, I mean, the, the people that have made some of the greatest art in the world had the worst, uh, like absolute worst family backgrounds or upbringing. I mean, like uh, Kyle Kinane is a comedian I like a lot. He has a bit... <laughs> about how he wanted to be like a, a punk rock uh, guy and he was in a punk rock band and, and how he used to get upset that his parents would come down and be supportive that he and his friends were playing bad punk rock in, the, in their basement in Chicago. It's like, you know, how is he supposed to be angsty if he comes from a supportive like home environment? You know, that's why he decided to be a comedian because at least then, you know, he could wallow in his mediocrity for years. <laughs> Slam the door. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally misquoting his bit, but the general gist is there. Like, like the, I think the point that he makes, and, and maybe it's bad form for me to convey another comedian's bit, especially one that's been more established. It's, it's been out for a while, but whatever. But <laughs> I think the point is that kind of like, it almost goes back to what you were talking about, right? Your ability to um, relate on all these different levels. Yeah. You're talking about how, you know, you, you you've been in gunfights before and you've had uh the, the the experience of having, you know, mom bartender and you know and and the kind of the the cancer in your family and stuff and you you know all the things you've had that it makes you it gives the art you create depth. Um when people and I guess that's really kind of that trick, right? 
is how much adversity makes you stronger, makes you more resilient, makes you more, um, gives you that well from which to draw when you're making something without destroying you. Yeah. You know, I thought about that. And one thing that can cure some of that is travel or cultural experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that does, that does wonders. And I know we talked about um, kind of this emotional palette concept I talked about earlier, yeah. which is something yeah, yeah. I always kind of, I always draw back to and, um, and, and talk about. Um, oh man, I'm at a loss for what I was connecting that to. Did it have anything to do with sticking your dick in mashed potatoes? <laughs> Classic. Oh man, you know, I, just off the top. For of For those, my- by the way, for anybody who are, who don't get the reference, go listen to the album "Ill Communications" by uh, Beastie Boys. It is one of the greatest, not just hip hop, but one of the greatest albums of all time. Uh, oh, so much depth in in that, and but there's there's a there's a reference in there. So you go back and you find it. You'll you'll hear what we're talking about. Absolutely. I was gonna pair one thing um, with music and film. Something that yeah. I was working on a documentary, and David Carradine told me this. Okay, um, I'm, 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 I pay attention. He he uh, he gets my respect because he wasn't a martial artist when he did the Kung Fu series, but he later <laughs> learned to practice the stuff for real himself later on. So we're in a cool. uh, we're in this seedy parking lot structure, um, in a place called like Forty Eight Windows. It's an audio recording studio. He's doing some work on a documentary I'm working All on, right. and he has this weird medicine man pouch. And he's talking to me while he pours this like these pills out in his hand. He looks down. He's like pushes them around with his finger and sorts them and just like swallows a bunch of pills and chases it with this other thing. And he goes, "You know, there's a difference. Um, the main difference between music and 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 film, don't you?" And I was like, "No. Uh, like like what is it?" And he's like, "Well, music. The main difference is that." you can repeat a musical performance. And although you have formulas in film, you can't repeat it. Do you know why? And I'm like, no, why? Like, I'm just like, I'm trying to soak up this David Carradine game, baby. Right, right. Like, I'm like, no, tell me, David Carradine, you dashing-looking motherfucker. <laughs> it's, it's like, um, because music can be written into notes. And these notes could be composed into a pattern, and they can be replayed by anyone. And film can't really do that. You can synchronize sound, you can create feelings, but it's so much more like moldable um, to be able to pair emotions with music, dialogue with music, and how that carries things through is just so different. And that's why I started making, and and I filed that back in the back of my mind. That's why I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh man, that's why they love making so many remakes. Like we're getting to replay the song, you know? Right. But it's still comes out different. Weird story about a monkey going crazy at his nephew's birthday party and attacking clown. Okay, dude, bring on the David Carradine stories if you if you think you can relate it. <laughs> I can't even loop it in. Okay. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> you know, he. It's funny though, because like he, he's it, it, there's sort of a weird thing with him, right? Where people either give him a lot of respect or they dismiss him. Man, I and, think and I, autoerotic I, asphyxiation is an honorable death. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I uh, 
Yeah, I'm not sure where to go with that, but that's that's cool. And I, I think I think the, really the, the the trick is is you have to have your buddy in the next room, but not have him tell you so that he can cut your ass down if you you know. Uh, my safe word is. <laughs> I don't know like how that would go. Maybe in modern days he could have an Apple Watch on. Like if I flatline, come check on me. Otherwise, doing my weird, hang myself. Maybe we should. Uh, maybe Seth Rogen's going to include that in his next movie. <laughs> uh, it was sad when I saw that in the news. I was like, oh But oh well. He, his dad was a good uh, actor too. His dad was. His whole family, like a bunch of them, did did stuff. I actually, uh, I think one of the roles in which there's a reason why Quentin Tarantino pat, uh, cast him as um, as Bill and Kill Bill. You know, obviously he's referencing the whole Kung Fu series and everything, but I, I still, aside from the reference, I think he handled that that role so perfectly. Like, I, I don't think anybody could have done that role the same way. Oh, to complete justice, here's something that very few people know. Because I was there with David Carradine and Michael Madsen walked in, and Michael Madsen's hilarious. He's like, you know, uh, the parents run away from me because they know me cutting cops' ears off from the Reservoir Dogs, but the kids run up to me because they love me from Free Willy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, so he's talking about that. And then um, he's like, you know that belt buckle right there? And he points over at David. David's wearing this belt buckle that says, Billy's like, yeah, I wore it today because I knew I'd see him. Mike. He's like, yeah, I bought him that belt buckle in fucking Mexico. <laughs> And he's like, and and, oh my God, he was so troubled. Michael Madsen, he was like, I got this list of movies on my website. I got a list of movies I like and a list of movies I don't like. And I don't understand this whole point system of getting royalties. Bring me a fucking bag with money. I don't have time for these points. I never see the money. Like, like cathartically complaining with like (laughs) David Carradine about this shit. And they were going back and forth. And it was just the strangest thing to kind of just be a fly on the wall watching these guys and like it was strange did uh all right so do you have any projects you'd like to actually make now like like any concepts you're in the process of kind of you may not want to give away your secrets right i'll give away anything i don't care if someone wants to make it they make it um i had a screenplay for a film called gray cassette um okay like i've been so vested in this for so long like i own graycassette.com it's a movie i've tried to make a bunch of different times. Which Is it about like a mixtape or something? Or Yeah, so DJ Screw sold these tapes called Grey Cassettes. And one of the famous lyrics from it with Little Kiki is like, um, a pop in your Grey Cassette, turn up your fucking dicks, because uh, the south side fender wreck, down here we smoke trees. It's like this like weird little anthem. And this right. this Grey Tape, or the Grey Tapes or Grey Cassettes that he sold, um, like he was doing like fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a day of people just coming up and getting Dude. these tapes. And the whole story is um unpacks what drank and what barbiturates did to the scene. I talked to a lot of people over the years to get an understanding of how they were able to pump in so much pharmaceutically controlled uh drank into Houston. And the key of it was is there was one guy who I shall not name because this is all probably within statute of limitations. Right. Who was, um, who set up a fake pharmacy and got all the paperwork and stuff filed to start using that to shield these massive deliveries of drink 
from the pill mills in Florida that got it directly from South China, all these pharmaceuticals that were coming in. So it's a story about a guy who is like a teacher at uh, one of those Christian academy schools who just wanted more and more and more and kind of lost his way, lost everything as he kind of got into the drug game and was little, behind the scenes. A little bit of a weeds or a uh, Breaking Bad kind of a vibe? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, but with drank, so a barbiturate. So instead of everyone being all fast, they're all like, may hold up, screw. You know, just like everyone's right. like real slow, like they just took a whip it. <laughs> Sounds like a cool idea, though. I mean, shit, yeah. like it's a good backdrop for something. Yeah, it's not nothing. But other than that, I mean, I collect boom boxes. I rebuild electronics. I mean, I fill my nights with them. I'm constantly trying to figure out how things work and, and other things. And um, But yeah, documentaries is the main thing I work on right now. I'm in production with um, three or four different ones for companies and schools and constantly trying to uh, elevate and find the stories that matter to give substance to really stuffy culture. You know, and that's a challenge, but I, I try to do it. And I, we've been pretty successful at Texas Filmworks. What's, uh, you were talking about the, the racism stuff that you worked on with the schools. Is, is there something that you've done recently you feel really, really proud of? Like that you, you think surprised kind of the, the space that it's in? Man, I, I don't really have like a crowning feather in the moment, a feather in the hat kind of moment for, um, stuff we've done super recently i contributed there's a brilliant filmmaker i work with named clay taylor uh, an editor named Lindsay cottle and uh, andrew kills and are really good friends um up here um they collaborated and made this uh sports documentary called gilly uh which cataloged a walk-on 12th man sports player that eventually got drafted to the texans and it kind of follows his story of um, kind of what he went through in his life. Um, That's pretty dope. There's, if you look, uh, if you check out, there's an interesting black history piece that I'm doing um, a much larger project on right now that I'm really excited about, um, about a gentleman named Hugh McElroy, who was the first black starter at Texas A&M University. I went to school with his daughter, so it's like I already knew the family. Okay, so you had a connection, personal yeah. connection. That's cool. This guy was the, the first black starter on a football team, and he graduated in 1972. So I'm trying took, to find out. It took out, that long? I'm trying to find out why, and I'm trying to find out what happened. And the, the best thing about that is in he just started. There's a lot of weirdness, right? The fans are like, this is the first guy we've seen on a team like this, right, down here in the South. And they play LSU, and LSU Oof. is just a fierce, badass team. And Hugh McElroy makes this game-winning catch against the final moments of the clock and runs it in and wins the game. He's like, he's to the 10, touchdown, Hugh McElroy. Has that transatlantic accent that was going to be like, right, yeah. yep. like, <laughs> prepare yourself, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, it's that same kind of like Marv Albert, do you believe in miracles? <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, so I'm doing a story about him, and I'm really digging into the all the weird shit. I'm like, man, what made you come to this university? It was like, like, so then I even tracked down the coach who's like 90-something years old. His name is Gene Stallings. And like, you know, you walk into that dude's How cool house. is that that he's still around, like, that you have yeah, him as a source Yeah, or that like he this. remembers stuff, you yeah. know, that he's not completely lucid. But it was just so interesting. Um 
to try to unpack. And I, like, I thought I was going to uncover this giant story about like, this motherfucker's a racist. I'm going to get him on camera. This shit's going down. <laughs> and I get there and he's like, well, black people didn't want to come here because there were no other black people. And uh, they black young black men like young black women and there were certainly no young black women <laughs> and i'm just like oh shit it makes sense guys just want pussy <laughs> i was like oh shit like <laughs> See, uh, <laughs> honestly most of the mo- the amazing things that men have accomplished we get all the credit it's because we want some yeah no I mean, reality dress, is yeah you know it's like why i mean now it, like why did I start playing bass and in rock bands and stuff? Because I wanted to get a, you know, I, yeah. I wanted a date for Friday night or whatever, you, you know. Were auditioning. It, I was particularly not successful at it. I had a horrible uh, romantic you know, dating life experience in high school, but um, you can't win the lottery it, unless you play, bud. <laughs> that, that's accurate. Accurate. But yeah, not to be misogynistic, you know, girl power, man, I fuck with that, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so I'm uncovering uh, and untangling this. So I find out, um, without giving away too much, there's a sure. pivotal moment in the documentary where his grandfather says, of course you can go to A&M because it's a military school. His grand- his father served in the military. His grandfather, like the lieutenant Dan scene from yeah. Forrest Gump, is like, and his daddy's died in a war, and his daddy, you yeah, know, he's going back. And um, and then he goes, hey, I'm quitting football. And he goes, if you don't join the military, you're no longer a McElroy. It's just like, oh damn! Um, That's you. You uh, film that particular scene, right? However, you play that, man. That 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 gives people some shivers down their spine. Yeah, no, I'm building it up huge, right? And I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to reveal or unveil this. Yeah, but the twist is later on in this game in Houston in uh, the 1970s during that season. Yeah, they do this giant full page article on the front of the Chronicle. And I'm not going to give you all the details and stuff, but it says McElroy is no stranger to a fight. And they cite this article about his grandfather who was in the Rough Riders and a Buffalo soldier and his dad who served. And it all culminates to this giant newspaper article. And he gets there and he hasn't talked to his grandfather since. And he looked over and the dude is like wearing his full uniform at the game. Never talks to him, but just gives him a nod. And to him it was like winning... Winning his name back, his his family name, mm. his family right. So it's kind of a powerful moment. That's that's beautiful. It sounds like it, I I can see why you've been attracted to the story because, should like and that's honestly like like Justin who is our still to this day silent producer. I keep inviting him to be an actual guest on the show, but he has yet to take me up on it. <laughs> I don't know what that's about, but. Um, but I, I think one of the things we we've been talking about, like, what do we want to do with this whole adventure mind thing? We're I mean, we're we're you know barely into our second season of, of the podcast, but you know it's live, love, tell stories, repeat. Hell yeah! Right? Like like life is there's so much out there. There's so much, and 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 I, I think it kind of goes back to I, we were kind of I was thinking about this a little bit more, trying to refine where we were going with it. And as you were talking about the emotional palette thing, right? Like your life experiences and everything. Um, telling your own story helps remove the hurt that other people's stories have on them. For sure. And, and I think even if you don't actually tell your story, 
But if you tell a story, you know, if you you live intentionally, you actually take a minute to to love people, to give a shit, and you tell a story that actually matters to you, that that might matter to somebody else, whether you're serious or not. You can tell a joke, but that joke can be a cathartic experience for somebody. You can um, play a song about how masturbation is artificial sex. Look up lust control if you're one, if you're confused. <laughs> Lustcontrol.com. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing. <laughs> But the point is, is like if you do something that resonates with somebody, then that that makes their life just a little bit less dark. And I I think what you're doing, talking about what you want to do with sharing this particular story, I mean that that's going to be, I could see potentially very powerful for a lot of people. Just hearing you relay it, I'm kind of like, all right, I've never played football, uh, other than like a pickup game, and I sucked at it. Uh, I'm very much not uh, resembling. Uh, you know physical features of the gentleman you spoke of i i i do come from mixed ancestry but i look very white so i i can't really directly relate us to the specifics of his story but the struggle the disappointment of family the redemption you know all that kind of stuff i think that's that's stuff that can resonate with people because it's real oh yeah what if he never made that catch and then like you know what i mean (laughs) like and i never saw him again (laughs) you know it's like it's weird because for every story, it 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 when you get to paint a picture of how things can end up, and it, it paints a fantasy for yourself, thinking, "Man, I really could have corrected things and had it better." You know, I wouldn't live with all this pain if I things wouldn't have lined up this way or that way. And I think that's why I'm so into sci-fi and fantasy. You know, it's because you get that escapism. You get to imagine a different world, different tastes, different smells, different things, and. You get to um, you get to be distracted from your daily grind, all your responsibilities, and uh, just just let your you know open up your your third eye or whatever without using uh, you know peyote and having to throw up for a couple of days. You know, <laughs> I don't know how like I've listened to some of your podcasts and I feel like I'm just like a C three PO storyteller versus no, an open dude. Like this is dope, man. Like. <laughs> So far, like the reason I haven't said anything is because you've just been going. There's been no need. Like I, I say one little thing, and you're like, "Oh, and by the way, there's this one time David Carradine and Michael Mas- <laughs> you know, like, like, blah, 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 like, oh, and the, the guy pointed a loaded gun at my 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 camera. Like, shit, where's there for me to jump in? I'm like, I, I, I feel I, I was I was joking for the recording that we kind of bite off Rogan in style, but sometimes I feel like Rogan's done so. I just I think I need to do a, a couple of quick Rogan things. Uh, you ever tried ayahuasca? Uh, you should smoke weed with me. You ever do mushrooms? Uh, you know, like, like you should really try DMT. Uh, like literally every fourth thing. So like, I, I feel just as I, now I understand the pressure he has to jump in and say something because you have a good guest and sometimes you're like, uh, it's just, I, I do want to say something. So it's like a conversation, <laughs> but like sometimes like legitimately, like everything you've been talking, you've been talking about so far has been dope. So like we're, we're, we're gold. So don't even <laughs> don't even stress. Well, I mean, and you're just you're like me in the sense of like we're always there's some quality about people that are always on the outside looking in. Yeah, you know, always conscious of their presence and how they move. Mainly for me, I'm so big, it's so I don't run into anyone. Like I have glasses, so even when I wear like my COVID mask, like the risk of COVID, oh, your glasses like uh, fog up and stuff. 
That's what I'm saying, dude. So, like, the yeah. greatest risk to people around me in a supermarket isn't COVID. It's me not being able to see and crushing their family by falling on them. <laughs> like, that's, like, a much larger problem than me giving you COVID. Because if I fall on you, they're going to need, like, the jaws of life to peel the card dude, off you. Dude, you. you need the, those uh, those Grant Hill basketball goggles. <laughs> you know, I need, like, the Hannibal Lecter face mask thing or, like, a complete... I need to just do curbside. <laughs> I just need to do yeah. it. I just need to have the people come bring it. Well, you know. Um, hey, man, dude, this has been seriously dope. Uh, like, I, uh, as I've said before, you know, like, like Justin, uh, the, the, the guest, this behind the camera a little bit. I, I like how I say behind the camera because this is an audio podcast. Right? <laughs> Don't mix my metaphors much. Um, but, like, like he doesn't get nearly the amount of uh, credit like for the guests that I didn't that, that he booked and that he connected me with so far it's it's been uh been awesome every every time so far Hell yeah. uh, I, I know we're we're kind of probably running down the end of your available time I don't know what you got but you, you said you're a big big fan of sci-fi and fantasy and stuff how does has that impacted like kind of some of the stuff you make or just like for inspiration or just kind of how you unwind or oh yeah I wouldn't even attempt I just like I just I uh I I enjoy it so much. Um and I don't know uh, or are you are you a, a closet sci-fi fan where you don't really talk about it so No, much I'll talk not, about it. so it's not I mean, street enough. I like really kooky. I like weird shit. Once I found trauma film more horror than sci-fi. Okay. All right. Trauma films. I mean, I'm talking like Army of Darkness, I'm talking Tremors. Dude, Army of Darkness is one of the most one of the greatest uh Comedy horror films of all time. Yeah. Period. Bar well, none. If they, yeah. I'm Romero, everything. Really yep. dirty, weird stuff. I'm into it. Um, yeah. You I, ever made any of it? Oh, man. I just don't have the budget. You know, <laughs> all brains, no budget. So my all my f- films are like about, you know, like a, like a gay painter learning how to become a hairdresser or something. <laughs> like, it's never like, I don't have the budget for like a squib pack and stabbing people. Like, so I have to have like, well, you just stab people for real. Might... What was that one movie that they made that like, where they really like use like pig carcasses or something? Oh. It's like some famous documentary where, wherever like people who were in it have permanent PTSD to this day. Oh, no. I don't know what it is. It's some horrible thing. Don't you like how I end the podcast on a really downer moment? <laughs> yeah, let's all get yeah, down. Yeah. yeah, so I always talk about how adventure is a state of mind. Well, apparently, adventure is a state of mind of PTSD this Live, time. Live, laugh, and stab pigs. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how that's... Uh, but, well, I'm trying to find a way to dig myself out of this one. But uh, Anything else? Uh, where can people find out about what you're, what you're doing? Oh, man. <laughs> so, I'm always What's behind it? the scenes. Yeah, but I mean, like we you got re- like we a can personal this side ending or? for an edit. No, we'll, we'll keep the warts in and all. They get this here. <laughs> I'm all about people seeing that. I I sometimes snumble. I I, I joke that you know uh, I'm not going to go there. Never mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not going to dig this all any deeper, but um, dude, like seriously though, this has been a dope conversation, and and the reason I haven't opened my mouth, you were asking me earlier, is because. I kind of like, I feel like if I say anything, I'm going to ruin the flow of your stories. So, Oh, I'm just, uh, yeah, I I derail all conversations and meetings no matter what. So, I mean, it's just, I (laughs) I don't even have a point. I never have a beginning and middle or an end. I'm just uh, orbiting in a very circular way, exploring everything. 
but I would very Tarantino of you. You really, I would like to, (laughs) if I was to listen to podcasts to learn more about you, Joshua, do you have one where there's a lot of content where someone interviews you? You know, I've been on a couple, but, uh, shoot. Um, basically it's, it's kind of like, uh, I make so many references to Rogan. You basically have to read between the lines through this podcast a little bit. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm in a movie that hopefully will eventually make its way to, to light. There's a movie uh, called uh, Miracle in Malibu, I think it is. And it's funny because I, I didn't realize it, but apparently I'm in a movie with Laird Hamilton, uh, yeah. <laughs> which do, that, do you know who that guy is? He's like freaking 60, 50, 60 years old, and he's surfing down 60-foot waves. Man. What, so, but what, did you play a surfboard? No, I, w- I was just a documentary on on. Uh, I did not play a surfboard. So. <laughs> um, I, I was actually the. Uh, I, I a lot of people don't know. I have. Uh, I do have some film extra work. Uh, I was a body double for the surfboard that um, Keanu Reeves surfed in in, in Point Break. Oh man, that's cool. I hope he signed you. <laughs> Yeah. Well, no. See, see, I was a body double. He, the, the people only really recognize the surfboard he he uh, he, he wrote on. They don't recognize me. Oh. They just assume I'm that guy. Because <laughs> <laughs> you only saw me from the back. See, if you saw my face, then you realize I wasn't the surfboard. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> oh man, but, um, Joshua, this but, has been so yeah, fun. Yeah, this dude. has been, just been just seriously fun. I mean, I, I think uh, if you got some connections on podcasts, I'll I'll go talk to anybody. But but I think uh, for the time being, the best way is to just kind of read between the lines on the podcast here. But um, but thanks, Donnie. Uh, is there a website, Instagram, anything that if, if people want to come check out what you're doing? Yeah, you can check out my uh, corporate boner work. At, I think it's <laughs> txfilmworks.com, like txfilmworks.com. You should see some stuff that's like if you have like a big company and you're like, man, we got to drop some mad loot to make everyone love us and be like, yo, we got you. Um, for creative stuff, just, um, I mean, honestly, if you if you Google D-O-N-N-Y-H-A-L-L, you might be able to find some stuff. Um, but if you have any accoutrement, I can send you a list, a laundry list of my top 10 music videos that I've worked on um, to cool. where at least... If you don't dig the visuals, you can get, you know, a vibe of the sound and music that was For coming sure. out of the 2000s in Houston, Texas during that time. Nice. Well, maybe we'll put up some links in the uh, in the show notes so people can go check out some of your work. I think it'd be cool. That'd be tight. No, this has been a dope conversation. For everyone listening, adventure is a state of mind. How you live it is up to you. Yeah.